Welcome to Net Takeaways with Feller and Harf, episode number Trace. Oh, we're still following the uh, I know. Non, non-English. Non-English, uh, episode number three. All for, right, we're back. <laughs> we're, we're back. here. Awesome. Good to be back, everyone. Thank you for uh, continuing to listen, subscribing, liking, sharing. We appreciate that. Uh, Today, we're going to break down a topic that I think has become a little more front and center. This is a topic as we laid out the first 10 episodes that we were going to do, Isaiah. It was on the number. It was on the list. I don't know if it was number four or number eight, but it was on there. It was on the list. But, uh, you know, times change, things happen, and uh, something that goes at number eight went up to number three. And uh, what we're going to be unpacking today is how the commercial real estate and net lease markets really act in times of economic uncertainty. Absolutely. For, first, though, before we get going, I've been told that I talk a lot slower than you do. That's the feedback I'm getting. Do we have a like a BPM count on that beats per minute? I don't know. Minute? My 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 brother-in-law said, you know, your partner sounds incredibly professional. It sounds like he's been doing this for ten years, and and you just sound a little slow. <laughs> well, I mean, in his defense, I did bribe him very well to say that, so that's not necessarily <laughs> unbiased opinion. But uh, <laughs> no, I I, I think uh, most people, at least thirty percent of the listening audience, probably doesn't actually know what I'm saying because I do. I have a history of speaking way too quick. I I like your measured tone when I listen to the podcast a lot more than mine. But thank you nonetheless to Julian, your brother. Yeah, yeah, Julian, uh, my brother-in-law, Brad. Oh, oh it's Brad. Brad, it's a Brad. Yeah, no, he's yeah, he's. He's, he's a total legend, but. Well, uh, with that being said, and I'm going to try and keep the staccato pace to a little minimum today, how does commercial real estate net lease uh, act in times of economic uncertainty? And in and of itself, I think that's an interesting and fascinating question that we really wanted to unpack. But what today's topic is really about is that in tandem with economic uncertainty on our doorstep. Absolutely. Uh, in the form of, you know, the, the buzzword, I'm sure it's trending on Twitter. It's probably hashtag number one or two or three, the coronavirus. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, with many cases today being reported, not only worldwide, but in the United States, there's just been a tremendous amount of media coverage that we can see every single day. Uh, the minute you turn on the TV, the minute you turn on the radio, it's coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. And I just think it's very interesting that obviously this is all happening uh, on the tailwinds of what nine plus years of economic prosperity, and uh, and it it seems like the media I think is going to have a really hard time being able to separate the two, right? Of being at the tailwind of of this economic pros- prosperity. And and also just, you know, a, a disease being heightened uh, out of, you know, out of a lot of reported deaths. Well, you make a really fascinating point, Isaiah, and it's a point that we're going to get into. This isn't commercial real estate specific, but it really is specific to the entirety of the news media. That's both social media news and cable news. I mean, we're living in the era of 24-hour 7 news. And... A lot of recent events in, in the last five to 10 years have really been impacted by that. I mean, people have really never lived through a epidemic slash pandemic in the age of the full cable news cycle and social media. So that's really relevant here. It's relevant because it shapes how humans, uh, particularly in, in the U.S., think about this very real uh, dynamic that's going on. But I think you make a good point. That is... Uh, really uh, a good example of how people have this incredibly heightened awareness. And I'm not saying they shouldn't, but it's just with this era that we're living in, these threats really become front and center. So hold that thought for a second. We're going to come back to that a little bit later on, but let's set the table before we get into it. Um, You know, I'm going to start with really unpacking this theme that we've heard. We've been doing this over a decade. Uh, this theme that we always hear from investors, anytime we see an economic pull down, pull back, uh, even uncertainty back in the 2016 elections, clients, both on the buy and the sell side, say to us all the time, net lease and commercial real estate does great in times of economic uncertainty or should do great in times of economic uncertainty. So sure. Isaiah, unpack that for us a little bit. What's going on there when people make that comment? Sure. Well, one, they're, they're staring at something that isn't doing well. Right. So stock market, stock, most notably. Yeah. And, and when the stock market isn't doing well, right, it's really, it's really easy to look at the other major asset classes that they've invested in and say, well, if one isn't doing well, right, the other should do well. Right. That's a very easy thing to say. Um, You know, one of the things that I think 
that I've found over the course of my career is that uh, when when one is bad, all is bad, right? And and that's ultimately what uh, what people end up thinking and how they end up reacting uh, to the markets. But it's it's interesting because ultimately uh, real estate is a hard asset. It's something that people are very familiar with. It's something that, you know, you walk down the street every day and and you see. And and I just and it's something it has familiarity, right? And it doesn't just have familiarity for people in the markets. It doesn't have familiar it, it has it's familiar, tangible. And exactly. I, and I think that really and that you you keep doing a great job of foreshad- foreshadowing some of the themes we're going to come back to here, but it's hard nature really does uh, tangibly change how people think about real estate. And that's going to be one of the elements that we're going to break down a little further. Yeah, and I think just, you know, this the stock market while it's not uh it's it's uh it's very digital today, right? And how we and in, in, in how we receive our news of the stock market sure. and 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 how it's run right that 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 has changed and evolved over the years yeah 30 years ago you were holding a paper stock certificate that you had to go to your safe and pull out now and i would even say a paper stock certificate was kind of arbitrary but right. it was less arbitrary than looking at TD Ameritrade today exactly exactly so let's uh with all that being said, what we really want to do is break down, um, does commercial real estate and net lease, how does it really fare in times of economic security? Is it this bastion of safety or is that the right wrong context? And should we look at it in a different lens and perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the commercial real estate market uh, overall uh, performs uh, moderately well. I think that's that's a good way of saying. It. I think it performs moderately moderately well relative to the stock market, and that the stock market's down two, three, four hundred percent, right, month over month, right. Commercial real estate certainly isn't isn't losing value at that sort of pace. Yeah, and I think we do tend to see just anecdotally. This is total anecdotal evidence, but we in in the brokerage business and most of our colleagues who we talk to tend to see a at least loose correlation with what's going on in the stock market. If the stock market takes one of these big 500,000, 1,500 uh, point pullbacks over a week, two week, three week period, we tend to see interest and engagement from investors slow down a little bit. We tend to see sellers ask a little few more questions. So there's at least a loose correlation. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're always working in tandem. I just think that the stock market has has uh, has has very stinging uh uh, declines, whereas I think commercial real estate it 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 doesn't necessarily happen overnight because there is this lag, right? There's this lag in uh, in in value, and there's this lag in in transaction timeframes, right? You can sell a stock in a minute, and you can't exactly sell your your real estate in a minute. Well, I think that's exactly right, and you gave us the the perfect setup there. Uh, you know, as we really look to compare the economic impact of uncertainty on the real estate market relative to other asset classes, I think you have to begin by breaking down a few of, few of the factors which you just uh, touched on. And, you know, the first is liquidity. How's liquidity and commercial real estate impact uh, uh, compare to the other segments? The second is the holding time frame. How, how do people think about when they're going to hold these assets and how long they're going to hold them? The third is resistance to some of these actual economic downturn and factors that we're talking about. And the fourth is is growth versus a yield-based kind of uh, investment thesis. So, I mean, with that being said, let's go back to the first one, liquidity. Sure. How do you think about liquidity in the commercial real estate markets and net lease relative to the broader economic environment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, obviously the liquidity of it it, it, the stock market is is far far more liquid than as liquid as it comes. It's like, it, besides cash or and, treasuries, and it's funny. And this is probably a good time to say it. You know, when people ask me, right, Isaiah, I have twenty five, fifty thousand dollars laying around, and I want to invest in commercial real estate. Right, what should I do? Right, and not to get off topic, but I always say buy a REIT. Right, if you sure. have no experience and you have, and 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 we're just having a very simple conversation at breakfast, I say buy a REIT, and they go, what what what. Well, that's not that's 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 not what you sell, or that's not. And I go, yeah, but it's incredibly liquid, right? And and it's easy to buy, it's easy to sell, it's easy to earn a dividend, and it's easy to kind of figure out, you know, what what's going on in the space before you really make an illiquid 
investment. It's a, it's a good way to dip your toes into the commercial real estate markets. Now, our REIT-based clients can hit pause here and fast forward for roughly 45 seconds, and we'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> All kidding aside, REITs are great, but they have their drawbacks. Sure. Right? They, you don't control the allocation across segments. There are fees associated with them, different tax consequences. You're not picking up the same benefits. But you're right. If you have twenty five to 50000 that is the most liquid way to get into real estate and the best place to really dip your toes into the water. And if you've never done it before, right? But, but you know, getting back to what we're talking about, I mean, I really, I, I think that real And by estate, the way, welcome back to our REIT investors and clients. <laughs> I, had to, I had to close the loop on that. Keep going, sure. Isaiah. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I really think that, uh, that you know, real estate's very illiquid and, and uh, relative to the stock market. And- it's it's important for people to understand that um, before the they they jump into the waters. Sure, I think you're absolutely right. You have to understand that, and I think intuitively most investors have some appreciation for that, but probably not a full appreciation of the liquidity. I mean, if most assets we guide investors to, if you're going to sell a run of the mill asset, start to finish, you probably need to plan on about a six month window. Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, maybe you get lucky. Maybe it's 90 days, but you got to kind of plan that it's 180 days. Yeah, it's a couple seasons. Yeah. So, it's a couple seasons. So with that being said, and as we look at this this broader question, commercial real estate in economic uncertainty, I think that manifests itself in a couple explicit ways. First of all, it means that capital going out is a little, there's a little more of a lag, right? Sure. I mean, if an investor is really nervous right now about the the economic envir- environment, and they just pulled all of their equities with Morgan Stanley from equities to cash, and they say, I want to liquidate all my net lease assets as well, and they come to us and say, sell all my dollar generals. Well, the truth is, unless it's a fire sale, they're probably not going to be able to pull that out for 90 to 180 days. And I think what that means is people tend to be a little less panicky about net lease because they know they cannot go to the marketplace and sell that asset today. Absolutely. And I I think one of the great benefits also of it is is that it prevents rash decisions. Right? It prevents the proverbial run on the banks a la, you know, it's a wonderful life, right? <laughs> Sorry, we, we, running inside joke here. Any movie references are not going to be picked up by Isaiah. I, I have a horrible penchant for um, <laughs> mentioning too many of them. But yes, it prevents the run on the bank, to your point. Exactly. I, I just, I, I think that, uh, right, it's really it's really easy to sell half your stock portfolio overnight. Yeah. It's much more it's difficult. It's easy to sell all of your stock yeah. portfolio for that matter. Yeah, it's also easy to lose it too, right? It is, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's obviously, it's much harder just to, as you said, just to sell 18 of your dollar general right in in two minutes that's that's impossible so it really does prevent you know that that kind of ultra quick you know irrational decision making sometimes that comes into play and on the same token i mean we were talking about equity on the way out equity on the way in takes time to get into the market so if last week you just did that morgan stanley full liquidation of your stock account you said i want to buy net lease great you can go buy net lease but you're not really going to get into that market in terms of actually having your capital in there, again, probably for 90 days, maybe 120 days. So I just think looking at that first factor of commercial real estate relative to the other markets, liquidity plays a huge impact there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move on to the next frame, holding time frame. I mean, how, how do you view holding time frame in the, the commercial real estate asset class versus other asset classes, most notably equity and bonds? Right. I mean, first, first and foremost, um, we we deal in cycles, right? And and I think it's really important to understand that when you purchase an asset, there may be something that you need to do in order to enhance the value or of pre- the asset or preserve. I mean, or preserve, either one, right? sure, either one, right? So, and that takes time. Uh, so, first and foremost, I think that it's it's important to understand that our space is a slow game. Um, or rel- you know, relatively speaking, it's it's a much slower game than the equity markets. Um, certainly, there are people who buy you know Berkshire A, Berkshire B, and and you know, forget about it, and, for- and, and and for and and forget about it. But but largely, people are in the equity markets, um, you know, to to return their investment, I think, much quicker 
than someone would in the real estate business. Or at least cycle their investment more quickly because I think sometimes people get a little more impatient in the equity markets. Yeah, absolutely. You, you don't have to take specific actions to create or preserve value as we mentioned in the real estate segment. I looked up a stat. I don't know how true this is or isn't. I didn't source it from multiple locations. But I saw the average stock is held for about 3.1 years. Yeah. Which, you know, in an era of high-frequency trading and all these other things, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. But intuitively, that felt about right. I mean, I think for a lot of private investors in 401k, you know, there's longer timeframes. But sure. on whole, I mean, I think three years is about how long most people hold these things. Yeah. And and, and think about, right, how, uh, how much longer, or at least the perception of how much longer people hold real estate is. Well, I was going to go right there I mean, and get, get the professional opinion of Isaiah Harf on that. Yeah. As we look at commercial real estate. What do you think of as the average holding time frame for most of these assets? I have my own thoughts, but I want to get yours here. Yeah, and I, and obviously, and this is kind of a separate discussion. You know, when we talk about financing of these assets, sure. but um, you know, for me, I I'd relatively say it's probably around ten years. Yeah, I mean, I think that could be a little bit on the long side because there is yeah. a lot of real estate gets that gets, and we'll get into this. And we later. haven't, yeah, and we haven't had a cycle. I don't think ten years long, right? I think this this cycle that started right in. in 2009, right? I mean, we're in 2020, so we're talking about an 11 plus year cycle. But uh, yeah. I think this is absolutely most real estate cycles. Uh, I don't know the averages, but I bet I'm, I'm guessing they're probably somewhere between six and seven years. I think that's right. I mean, yeah. I would personally peg the average holding period of most real estate assets probably a little less than the 10 year, but not that much. I'd put it in that six to eight year time frame. Yeah. Um, and I think we see a little more variance in that lease segment, which probably is longer, probably more correlated to lease term versus maybe office, hotel, retail assets that have more staggered lease expiration. Yeah. And we're, we've also moved into an era of of interest rates that aren't terribly volatile. And and I think that the forward-looking 10 years may be different than the 10 years prior to 2009, right, where interest rates really dictated uh, largely when people bought. A lot of real estate strategy. Yeah, they, they really dictated when people bought and sold. And so in today's environment where, you know, rates may simply not, rates may not be 100 bips different than they were 10 years ago, right? Strategies certainly have changed over time. I think that's entirely fair. Um, and I, I think that, 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 again, with liquidity, you have, to, you have to take into account that holding time frame because it really does shift people's perspective. Whereas if you're a, a reasonably shorter term holder in the stock market, then an economic pullback like this really is going to make you take note and potentially more likely take action. Whereas if you went into a net lease or commercial real estate multi-tenant office building, these economic blips, and, and time will tell if coronavirus is a blip or it is more serious, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But these 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 short-term dislocations have less of a propensity to affect your decision making. Absolutely. Um, so let's let's dive into the third one here: resistance economic resistance to economic downturns. And as we look at commercial real estate and its inherent resistance to some of these economic again disruptions from a fundamental perspective versus the broader market. I think this is an important factor that's easy to overlook. Absolutely. I mean, I, we, uh, we were lucky enough uh, just to return from a resort a few weeks ago, uh, and that resort's big brand came out. This is Rosewood Hotels came out and said that you know, they're providing refunds on anyone traveling overseas mm-hmm. to their hotels. And they're providing, you know, 100% refunds. A little bit of context here. Rosewood is obviously a very heavy Asian brand. So they're a little more susceptible to this, but they are a global brand. They're a global brand. And I think your point is valid here in that uh, certain segments have a little more immediate economic impact. I mean, if we look at the stock market, the impact is very quick there. You look at Delta. Delta, I think, was somewhere around, I'm going to get this a little bit wrong, but $50 a share, if I'm not mistaken, they've now pulled back to 38 Carnival, another very uh, frontline brand here, went from something like, I'm gonna, again, I believe 80 a share over the last couple of years, now down to something in the neighborhood of 45, so almost a 50% pullback. Stock market companies, to a lesser, greater extent, really take the brunt of these economic- uh, Yeah, publicly traded companies. I mean, they, they get hit 
immediately. Yeah, I mean, right. their business really can experience immediate volatility. As we get into the commercial real estate space, you referenced hotels. Hotels do yeah. tend to be on the front line because they, they're dependent upon constant booking. So they're a Absolutely. little more volatile. But then as we get into the balance of the commercial real estate segment, look at multi-tenant retail, multi-tenant uh, office, certainly industrial, and then on the other end of the spectrum, net lease, I think there's a lot more resistance there for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, these real estate assets tend to be equal parts impacted by the microeconomic environment of Mm -hmm. the immediate trade area as they are by the macro environment of the global and national economic environment. Yeah, I think think what's really interesting, though, that we can't forget about is that we're entering an age where – if you really don't want to leave the confines of your house to receive a good, you don't have to, right? And and we're entering a new age, whereas, whereas 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, I mean, delivery was, was very – was high in demand. I mean, the catalog industry was thriving. The – the merchants who delivered your milk were thriving, right? But but when you think about really how people you went and you got forgot their... about the Swan Man, the Swan Man delivering <laughs> frozen goods. But when you really think about how people have received their goods, right, over the last 30, 40 years, it was from traditional, you know, what we would call, you know, traditional retail outlets. Channels. Right. So so I think what's really interesting is is we now have uh, another epidemic in our in our in our in our world occurring or starting to occur, I guess we'll see. Um, <clears throat> and we're also living in the Amazon age, and it's going to be really interesting to see right how these retailers get impacted by people who may say, well, "I don't, I, I'm, I don't want to leave my house." And I don't have to. And I now, I now really don't. I now really don't have to. And this is really where we get to these crosswinds. Earlier, we talked about the crosswinds of how does this twenty-four hour news cycle, social media news cycle, impact things that we've seen happen in the past, and how does it shift the dynamic? And I think you make another good point. The knock on commercial real estate and net lease over the past five years, at least, maybe arguably longer, has been the risk from online retail. And mm-hmm. here there's a bit of a silver lining in so Huge. much as these retailers who figured out the home delivery model, the hybrid bricks and mortar and online actually could be huge net be- beneficiaries here in terms of food delivery, produce delivery, all of these things. Yeah. When you think about, you know, all the distribution centers that have been built and all the distribution centers, uh, which, which are, which are owned by landlords and leasing space to retailers. Uh, it's, it's it's incredible. I mean, as you said, I mean, the silver lining is is very real. And I think that these companies, especially those that have invested in the distribution side, uh, are really going to flourish in, in a market like this. I even think of things like teledoc services, which a lot of people are really getting into. Obviously, medical is a different segment, but still under the net lease umbrella. I think we're going to see a big pickup in telemedicine from this. I mean, people ha- now have the capability to call up, you know, bring up that iPhone app or Android app and be able to talk to their doctor, which is good for everyone. You don't want sick people going to the hospital or to the doctor's office if they're not at that point where they absolutely have to. So that's a very relevant uh, factor. But setting aside all the new innovations with online and and all these questions about bricks and mortar retail, just at the basic level, I think as we look at the net lease and commercial real estate markets, I think there's a level of insulation there between the immediate economic disruption that some of the publicly traded operators rating companies are going to see in commercial real estate. Now, that's not to say that a sustained economic uh, impact here isn't going to eventually impact commercial real estate. It's just going to take longer. I, I, I look back at, and, and I'll let you jump in in a second here. I look back at the Great Recession and, and net lease as a whole actually actually held up pretty darn well back in 2008, 2009, 2010. Cap rates definitely elevated for different reasons than the economic hit, but we didn't see a lot of disruption in the actual tenants there. I would argue that's why I'm in the business today. Uh, as somebody who was selling apartment buildings, I, I learned about net lease during the Great Recession and learned that there was still tremendous transaction volume during the Great Recession. Yes, cap rates weren't the same, but people felt very safe. People felt that lease terms could weather storms. Yeah. And and when you think about that, right, companies companies may be on a bit of a roller coaster, but as long as the company is staying in business and as long as population is growing 
at some level in that area, right, there's just a continued more, there's a continued greater need for the goods and services that, that, that tenant is providing in that area. And so even if we do have a dip, right, the, the, the lease term, if you have a 10, 15, 20-year lease term on your asset, as long as that company doesn't go away, right, you, you theoretically can weather that storm during times of economic struggle. I think that's really fair. And then that gives us a nice kind of run into the last item here. As we unpack the differences between the CRE markets and the broader financial markets, we talked about these four factors, liquidity, holding time frame, resistance to economic downturns. And then the last is growth versus yield-based investments. And, and this is where we made the comment in earlier shows, we'll make it way too many more times. We are really half bond and half hard asset real estate salespeople. And the reason we always make that comment is because people are, are investing both for the security of underlying hard real estates in the form of real estate, but they're also investing in equal parts for the yield that comes along with owning that hard real estate asset. Absolutely. Said differently, I was smart enough to be a real estate salesperson. I wasn't smart enough to be a bond salesman, but I still wanted to sell them. So this was a good this was a good fit. It's a for good me. hybrid and mix. Yeah, for you. yeah. This was a good fit. I for would me. disagree with not being smart for the no, 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 smart no, no, enough this, for the bond salesperson. But no, yeah. your point is a valid one. So yeah. I remember being on a plane in in uh, in the mid '90s with my grandmother, and and she said, "Honey, if you want to take your family to the breakers, you need." <laughs> To know how to sell these bonds, <laughs> and I and, and that's just stuff. So she me clearly like read Liars Poker by Michael Lewis or something like <laughs> that. But then I don't know what Grandma Harf was reading. Um, but no, I think it's a, it's a, it's a valid point. It goes this bigger theme of real estate, particularly net lease, being equal parts yield and 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 equity. And I think what's very fascinating in this moment in time is that if you look at where what bonds are doing, and let's use the Treasury as the most secure bond. I mean, Treasuries, the 10-year Treasury has plummeted. It's cratered. We had had a prior low that was about 1.4, 1.5, 1.6 type of range. Again, we're way back over the last 18 months. We went from three and a quarter down to 150, 160. That felt super cheap until dot, 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 coronavirus hit. Right. And we've seen the treasury just go wildly low. I think this morning is the lowest we've seen. I think it's the lowest I've seen in my career, 1.06. It might be close to the lowest of all time for that matter. And what it's reflective of is all that capital that's coming out of the, the stock market is not just going to checking and savings accounts. It's going to go into an ultra secure investment in the form of treasury bonds. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I can't get over how low the 10 year is. I I think that obviously it's providing all in coupons, you know, in the mid to high threes. And we're going to get to that in a moment because this yeah. is one of the mitigating factors. But just, I mean, purely looking at the yield side of real estate assets, in theory, seeing this super cheap rate should really be a huge driver. Absolutely. I mean, look at, <laughs> I don't have a better way of saying it, but look at how good we look right now, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, we're, we're right, right now. We're spoiler taking... alert. No one actually can see us right now. I know. Besides I know. the production crew. Hey, team, do we look as horrible as Isaiah made it sound? <laughs> what do you mean? Look at I'm saying, look at how good we look right now. It's 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 unbelievable. How good how good does your five cap yeah. with credit look right now? Oh, I thought you were referring to our to our actual wardrobe and apparel. You're referring to how geniuses we look when we're selling assets. Yeah, I'm a little I'm a little uh, a little more dressed up than typical. <laughs> you know, my I, I I got the socks working with the suit pants, the whole deal. I should tell the listening audience that you're rocking the Air Jordans again. That's kind of, you know, I'd like that look on you. I've transferred over to LeBron's as my feet Uh-oh. have gotten wider. But uh, One day, but, uh, one day you're going to have your own Air Jordan. I can feel it. You know, We're just going to call it the harf. I'm telling you, I got these LeBron 17s. They're phenomenal. <laughs> uh, link to that will be posted on the bio. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, just to, to put a bow on, on this, I think uh, from a yield perspective, which net lease and commercial real estate has at least equal parts of, this low interest, or low yield-based environment on other bonds, particularly treasury, tends to make people believe, well, net lease, commercial real estate's got to be a beneficiary there. Absolutely. I think, you know, when people look at the cash on cash returns that our industry is going to provide, um, especially with with fixed rate financing, right? So they're able to project their cash on cash returns for a longer period of time than maybe any other type of market. Uh, it's 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 incredible. It's steady. It's it steady. It's it's steady Eddie. And uh, 
And I think that, you know, when people look at, you know, what else they're investing in, they're going to look at our space and say, look, as long as this tenant doesn't go away, and I believe that they're going to benefit from cheap interest and they're going to continue to expand their market share, I'm, I'm a buyer, right? I think, yeah, I think that's fair. And we're going to get into some of the, the uh, caveats, for lack of a better way of saying it in a moment. But I just want to put a bow and recap that basic thesis. Those four items, really, A, slower, than, slower liquidity than the marketplace. B, resistance to these economic shocks to the system. C, the fact that it's uh, really got a whole longer window and time frame for holding the assets. And then D, it's got both the yield and growth-based components to it. Those four factors, at the end of the day, I think are really what lead people and investors to tell us or, or ask us, Commercial real estate and net lease has to be a winner in economic uncertainty. And I think it's a fair assumption, at Absolutely. least on the surface, for, for, for people to make. But I think our, our whole reason for doing this podcast is that there is more complexity to it than people might assume in looking at those four factors. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just think that, uh, you know, going back to something I said earlier, because it's a long horizon, a long time frame typical investment. I think that, you know, people people see the markets work themselves out and and they as asset owners become beneficiaries, you know, of that longer hold time frames. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about some of these these caveats because I think this is really important. And I think this is the nuance and the gray area that people don't often appreciate if they're not in the weeds of net lease. Um, there's some other kind of dynamics, for lack of a better way of saying it, at play underneath the surface that I think takes some of the the sting or some of the momentum out of the arguments for why real estate will be a net beneficiary in economic times. The first one I want to talk about is the capital market dynamic. Mm. Um, when we say capital markets, what we're really talking about is the lending market for commercial real estate. Sure. 20 years ago, the lending market for commercial real estate was life insurance companies and really banks. Um Maybe 25 years because about 1990, Nomura invented a great new wonderful thing called commercial real estate mortgage-backed insurance. And Mm -hmm. what this really has blossomed into is it's become Wall Street's version of real estate financing. We now call it CMBS or conduit debt. Conduit debt for non-multifamily assets really finances something in the magnitude of 40 to, I've heard in some instances, as much as 60% of the marketplace. Yeah. And and – CMBS financing today is a huge driver of our marketplace. Uh, I mean, certainly it is the it is one of the cheaper costs of capital, right? Probably the cheapest cost of capital Maybe in the most cheapest. instances. Uh, it is typically non-recourse, and it typically offers a very long am- amortization schedule. It's been a great overall thing for the commercial real estate market. Um, it has its it has its its pitfalls, and here's where our CMBS listening audience needs to take a 45 second uh, break. No, it has some challenges to it. We all know that, but overall, if you're looking for cheap non recourse financing, it's by far your best solution. And and I think uh, you know the idea of having a really long term of a loan, right? I mean, where typically you you could only go to a life insurance company to get that long term. And when you're saying 10-year, usually, uh, usually 10-year when you're referring to this type of long term because banks would be five to maybe seven years. Yeah, or even three years. I mean, yeah, typical in some bank instances, loans, three. Yeah. So it, that's, the, that's, that's the real benefit. And, and in, in working with a product that we work with, right, which, as we've said time and time again, acts like fixed income, it's it's incredible to be able to have a really long amortization schedule and not have to refinance these loans long over, loan term and yeah, not have to have that not, refinance right and not have to refinance them yeah uh, you know during the time period so I mean on the whole I think we would both agree CMBS over the last fifteen twenty years has been great for the commercial real estate markets the downside of it is when we're functioning in this environment what was great about commercial real estate was is kind of detached from the rest of the marketplace and that is to say that it wasn't necessarily 
intimately linked because of that economic resistance, because of liquidity factor. There wasn't a direct correlation, but CMBS has kind of changed some of those dynamics. And this is where I think people don't always have the appreciation as a, I like to refer to myself as a reformed CMBS lender. I got my start doing CMBS debt. And I think what people don't always understand is that pricing and the availability of CMBS mortgages is really driven by what the CMBS loan originators believe that they're going to be able to sell these big portfolios of bonds at into the secondary market. And as someone who lived through 2008, Lehman, Bear Stearns pullback and saw what happens when economic uncertainty is in the marketplace, we really saw a flight from liquidity for this. And what what happens when you see a flight from liquidity for commercial real estate mortgage-backed securities is the originators who are making the loan say, wait, either I need to price this loan way wider to account for the uncertainty in selling it, or worse yet, I'm not going to make this loan available to you at all. Right. And going back to your stat, I mean, if 60%, I, I think it may be even higher, right? If 60 plus percent of the lending market says we're closed for business, what happens? We're going to see pricing change. <laughs> There's no question about that. <laughs> now, right now, I don't know that we're seeing that yet. And I think we're still no, no. very new. I mean, the big stock market pullback we saw was last week. So we still don't know. The jury is still out of what's going to happen here. But what we have seen is these floors kick in on CMBS mortgages. The, sure. the run rate for the spread over the 10-year treasury for most CMBS loans over the last six months has been usually 200 basis points plus or minus. So in theory today, with the treasury sitting at 110 plus or minus, we should be able to see coupons all in at 3.1%, which again, cheapest debt we would have ever seen. The truth is a lot of the floors on these loans kicked in. And what I mean by that is the CMBS lender would say, you know, your flow, you're, you have 200 basis points over the 10-year treasury, but it's not going to be lower than 3.75%. Right. So people who are trying to do CMBS loans right now are not benefiting from this huge pullback. And the jury is still very much out whether or not we're going to see the CMBS market stabilize and be able to keep selling these or whether we're going to see illiquidity kick in a little bit. Sure. And certainly, I mean, these floors, you know, really benefit the banks. I mean, that's, and I want, I just want to make that clear. Well, and there's right? security, right? The banks are doing this. It does benefit them. You're right. But they're also doing it because if the treasury collapsed as it is, they don't know if they're going to be able to sell these. Sure. So it's a Absolutely. little bit of both. It is a little bit of greediness. It's a little bit of protection. Yeah, but they, right. Because they, as you said, I mean, it's, it's all about the secondary market purchasing what they're packaging. That's right. Um, I mean, certainly we've talked about CMBS here. Banks also, I think they're a little more immune because they're keeping most of the, of the loans on their balance sheet. But I think we all know bank presidents across America, whether it's a community, a regional bank, and even the bigger banks, they're going to be a little more cautious on underwriting. If you're, they're doing a hotel, they're going to be more cautious right now. So I think this, this question about liquidity from the capital markets does have a really big nuance but significant impact on commercial real estate in ways that people may not appreciate. Absolutely. And and when you look at, you know, historically what big banks have done uh, during during these times, they've they've said, look, we're happy to make you a loan, especially given the fact that you're such a wonderful deposit holder of us, BJ. But, you know, here's here's where the loan to value is going to be. And here's the kind of you know collateral that that we're going to need in order to make this loan, right? Which is all going to be more conservative, generally speaking, to absolutely to at least some degree. Yeah, I think obviously, you know, conversely, when when things are going really well and 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 high times are flying, right? Banks are very quick to make high LTV loans, and you know, really speculate with you arm in arm on how well that asset's going to perform. It's very much a herd mentality, for for, <laughs> for lack of better ways. And when it. and right and 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 when there's just the uh, when there's any sign of cracking, all of a sudden, uh, you can't get in touch with them. Yeah, and particularly when they can't assess what's going on, which I think or easily assess what's going on. Um, so that first factor that kind of changes the, the shifts the dynamic of how net lease commercial real estate performs is is capital markets. The second one, I think this is important: investor sentiment. We made the rational case earlier on for why those four factors really should insulate commercial real estate and does insulate commercial real estate. When times get uh, choppy, uh, when times get uncertain, we don't see investors always reacting rationally. And I think that that is a very important factor to note. Um, I think right now, investor fear ten is tending to prevail a little more over this nuanced dispassionate analysis of risk. So what happens when investors get fearful? 
Well, I think a lot of things happen. I mean, first of all, we tend to see more deals die, right? Yeah. From a from a active boots on the ground transactional perspective, we tend to see deals die for very arbitrary reasons. Often, absolutely. Yeah, I think you know, all of a sudden, people people don't necessarily believe in what they're buying, or they're just incredibly nervous about what they're buying, and and they get in their own head, and all of a sudden, kaboom. Well, that's your well, that, that's your word, kaboom. Well, you stole it. I'm, uh, I'm going to give you a solid seven point two on that kaboom. Kaboom. No, well, it's it's the kaboom of of of, of falling off the edge and you know and into yeah. the yeah, it's no good. And I don't know that we're seeing that yet. No, um, I think that the last big kind of pause or illiquidity moment we saw was probably after election 2016, where people are leading up to election 2016, where people are trying to assess. Really haven't seen it over the last three years, maybe with the exception being that big treasury move in December 2008 that we saw. But overall, we haven't seen it. I don't know that I've personally seen it manifest itself in the net lease market. I feel like I see some slowing right now, but I don't feel like we're, we, we hear that kaboom moment. Um, but I, I think that we have to keep our ear to the ground over the next couple of weeks to really assess that. Yeah, and there's obviously definitely a lag in our business as as, as we've always discussed time and time again with with a large percentage of purchasers of the assets we're selling being 1031 investors and and if they've already sold it doesn't really right they're going to do a deal no right, matter what. Right, they're going to do a deal. They're not interested in paying Uncle Sam, you know, millions of dollars of of cap gains. So yeah, so I think from an investor sentiment perspective, that fear does tend to kind of arbitrarily impact the actual fundamentals that we unpacked earlier. I think the other factor that's really relevant here, not so much for the 1031 private investors, not so much for the institutional investors, but kind of for everyone in between, when you see moments like this, people tend to take the other side of the coin for why real estate will shift in pricing. They're, sure. They say, well, the stock market's shifting in pricing, and I just bought stock at a 20 30% discount. I want that same discount in commercial real estate. And if I'm not seeing it today, I'll wait a few months to see if the lag does cause that. Sure. And that bid ask spread just widens and widens and widens as, you know, as, as we tick. But as I, as I always say, I mean, especially with the mark, with the stock market, investors have such a short time frame of remembering these bad times. Right. And, and as quick as the down happens, uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're they're high and mighty again, and so I think it's really important to remember that, uh, you know, as as time takes. I mean, remember our deals just take longer, yeah, right? They take longer than the equity, yeah, you know, than than transacting in the equity markets. I think that's fair, and uh, there's no question. There's just a longer fuse on it. So it should be really interesting to see what happens over the next three four months. But I'm I'm getting really excited, BJ, because you know what I want to talk about. Well, we got we got one more item. I think I know what you want to talk about. Oh, we got one more item on this, this topic, and and it's this shift in the weighted average cost of capital, which goes into that question about inventor, investor fear that we talked about in the previous point. But I think it's important to note that right now, weighted average cost of capital, and this is I'm going to give our friends at Realty Income uh, some credit. I was hosting a panel out in LA a couple of weeks ago, and this came up as a topic at NetLease uh, Interface West. And the the idea was that the cost of capital is a factor of both the cost of debt, which we know is really cheap right now, but it's also a a factor of the cost of equity in that equation. And I think this is something that people don't always appreciate is that for the last decade, the cost of capital, the cost of equity to net lease has gone down and down and down because people have become more familiar with the asset class. Absolutely. Right, Right now, as you look at net lease REITs, the prices have declined significantly in conjunction with the broader stock market pullback. And so right now, the average cost of capital, particularly for institutional REITs, has gone up because the fear factor has increased in the equity side of the cost of capital. Absolutely. And apologies for anyone who hasn't taken Economics 401. Isaiah knows I'm a huge economics dork. I love getting into these things. I but, didn't get past 201. Oh, I, 201 is, uh, is a tall task in and of itself. So you can, <laughs> once you start getting calculus into <laughs> economics, forget it. But uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that, uh, that uh, the economics background from Michigan makes me think in this really weird kind of context about real estate. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think you have to acknowledge that because it's definitely an impact. So, uh, let's let's step back up. We've gotten into the weeds here. Let's let's bring it back home and talk about what 
what's it all going to mean? We've talked a lot about the theoretical elements, but how, how do we think, based on the limited facts we have right now, this is going to play out vis-a-vis commercial real estate over the next few months, over the balance of 2020? Yeah, I, I really – and I think that it's important to separate the net lease market from, frankly, the rest of the real estate market. And I think, you know, this is a perfect example of of why we've invested so much, you know, time and effort into our space. Uh, you know, I, I really think that the net lease market's really going to be able to to waver – and deal with any sort of downturn that comes our way because of low interest rates and because of the fixed income nature of the space we play in. And I, and conversely, though, I think that assets that, you know, rely on on population growth, assets that rely on improvement to the asset itself, uh, in order to produce a stable NOI, you know, assets that really involve people, right? Multifamily, hospitality, um, you know, certainly retail to a to a lesser extent, um, I, I think are really going to be affected, you know, by the noise. Um, I, as I said, I mean, I think net lease, I think fixed income, long lease terms, and certainly, uh, you know, distribution and, and those buildings that contribute to the way in which we receive goods in today's day and age are really going to flourish in today's market with, uh, the, with, with the low interest rates. And I think you have some really compelling arguments that we're going to digest those a little more in a moment. But before we do that, just we did some research on this because I think that a lot of there isn't a lot of uh, institutional knowledge in today's marketplace about how people have experienced past uh, pandemics, endemics, uh, uh, I should say epidemics or pandemics. And I think either the, the closest we've had in the last 20 years was SARS and MERS, and even those didn't get that widespread. They didn't yeah. get to epidemic stage or pandemic stage. I'm sorry, I was confusing the two terms. So or we did a little- Ebola, right? Well, Ebola, exactly, but yeah. you know, more localized still uh, regionally in sure. Africa. As we looked back, we did some research and looked at what the 1918 Spanish flu and what the 1957 flu pandemic really did to the financial markets. Yeah. You know, these events were long enough ago where it's not really easy to look at the real estate pricing and dynamics. So we use the equity markets as this broader parallel. Sure. Well, I was just going to say, I called my, that same grandmother, you know, who, <laughs> who, uh, who told me how the to breakers. get to? Who told me how to get to the breakers? And and she couldn't remember the 1957 flu pandemic. But <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> and I would I would speculate that not not many people do, <laughs> which they can be forgiven for. But you know, as we look back at these and saw what they really did, you know, 1918 was an interesting. Uh, it was the Spanish flu killed an incredible amount of people. I think the the death rate was something like two percent. The mortality rate, I should say, was something like two percent. It impacted forty percent of the globe. I think it was something like like 10 million people. I'm going to have to look back and get that stat right. But just a huge amount of human carnage that was inflicted upon society. You look at what the stock market did, and admittedly, this was a little skewed by the fact that we had a little thing called World War I going on at the point. So economic conditions were not ideal. But the economic the actual stock market impact was very, very limited from the Spanish flu. And then in 1919, once it passed, uh, I think the, the flu really ran rapid for about 12 to 18 months. Once it passed, the stock market saw incredible growth going into uh, 1919 and 1920. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, whenever we've seen these types of episodes happen in the United States uh, and across the world, it's kind of funny. There's always been something else also kind of going on, right? Like today we're discussing the coronavirus, uh, or we will be, and and we see, you know, a, a market that's run for 11 years, right? In in 1918, we see, you know, we, we saw, excuse me, World War One occurring, you know, in 1957. I mean, it was, you know, it's the greatest generation. It's, it's the the era of post-World War II American boom, right? Yeah, post-World War One, but yeah, absolutely, there's no question. Well, no, in 57, though. Oh, in, in 57, the, I'm yeah, sorry, 57 yeah, in the, the midst of the baby boomer generation. Yeah, I mean, it was just, yeah, I mean, everything's rocking and rolling, yeah. right? So, I mean, it's kind of interesting that, you know, there's always been this convergence of, of something else going on, which, uh, you know, continues to... To, to prevail, I think, and continue to well, to keep things moving. And it's tough to pull those apart. In 1918, World War One was probably a drag and probably helped the economic impact not look as significant or sure. at least already was pulled down. 1957, there was enough economic growth going on generally to allow that to continue to push forward. And today, I mean, we're going to get into this really further in a moment, longest expansion ever on history, solid growth, not great growth, looked like, you know, 
earlier this year before the corona fears emerged that we had enough economic growth, enough steam in the engine to keep things going for another 12 to 24 months. The question now is, is coronavirus the proverbial kind of push over the cliff that sends the economic environment maybe not into a significant recession, but a mild recession? Sure. And, you know, and again, how does how does fear, right, play into all of that? Because that's, that's generally speaking, um, you know, I think what, what our markets are most concerned about, right? I think that's totally fair. And I mean, really, when we look at commercial real estate, to all of our discussion earlier, we're not as concerned about the momentary three, six, 12-month blip. We're really more concerned about that five to 10-year blip. And in order for that five to 10-year time horizon to get really impacted, the most important thing which you alluded to earlier is we have to see real structural damage to the marketplace on either the supply or the demand curve. I think we all know, unlike the 1990 commercial real estate pullback, which was really supply-fueled, supply feels pretty good right now in the commercial real estate market. So really not impacted by the supply side of the equation. This is all about the demand side of the equation. And I think when we look at that, there's really two big factors that could impact demand side of the equation. One is population. We know population right now could be susceptible to the coronavirus. Sure. Um, If we saw, you know, something on the magnitude of the Spanish flu, which I don't think anyone is suggesting, that would be a significant global impact on the population side of the equation. I think the more interesting point, Isaiah, is really this global supply uh, and logistics, supply chain logistics equation, because I think that does have the potential to be really significantly impacted by this. Absolutely. I mean, when you when you when you think about right what people do in their jobs every day in order to get the goods out the door it's it's unbelievable and so you know when i think about it on a grand scale i think about everybody in those amazon distribution centers and i think about everybody in those coca cola distribution centers who you know are are making sure that the world runs every day and if all of a sudden right we start to have shutdowns, we start to have, uh, you know, fear in people in going to work or leaving their house, right? How, how, how do these goods in the end get distributed? Yeah, I think that's an entirely fair question. We already saw some of this at play in late 2019 from the trade war, right? Uh, we saw a lot of corporations say, you know, China's a great place for me to be having the front end of my supply chain. However, if we're going to see long-term sustained trade battles between the U.S. and China, I might like to be in Vietnam, I might like to be in South Korea or or some other Asian environment that offers me those same economic drivers. But what we learned from that really fundamentally was that these supply chains are on, you know, they're on very finely tuned schedules. Corporations have been under massive pressure to be able to get every dollar of profit extracted. And what it's meant is that these run on these incredible timetables where they know when the shipments are coming, they're plugging them into the final assembly factories in the U.S. And if they don't come, that's a real concern. Absolutely. I mean, I I don't even want to know what's going to happen to Apple stock if all of a sudden, right, the screens can't 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 get from one plant to another. Yeah, Q2 earnings are not going to look very good if that's the case. <laughs> I think we're all keenly aware of that. Yeah. So I mean, it's scary. Uh, uh, you know, for for we're going to be we're going to be cautious about looking into our crystal balls. We've known we tried to throw the crystal ball out the window a long time ago. But the thing I think we're most concerned with right now is is the coronavirus serious enough to impact the demand side of the, to really impact the supply side or the demand side of the equation from these supply chains? And does that have the capability to push push us into a recession for the balance of 2020? I think right now we feel pretty good that to the extent that we don't see that happen, I think real estate's going to come out the other side of this looking pretty favorable. Absolutely, I I don't feel like I don't feel like it's going to have that that large of an impact. That's 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 just my overall feeling. Could it if we saw something, you know, drastically change? Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, if all of a sudden uh, we start to really see, you know, a number of people dying in Asia, I think that that would drastically change the way that people do invest in commercial real estate. Uh, but I think largely right now, you know, and again, we're kind of in that waiting period. We're kind of in that holding period where it's it's too early to tell. I mean, but if I'm forecasting, I I think that uh, 
we're going to be okay. And coupled with low interest rates, I think that the demand is still, you know, going to continue to be fueled. It's still going to be there. And we're still going to see, frankly, a lot of funds who have already set up this capital have to spend the capital. And and I think that they're, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to be fearful of what of of the noise. They're not they're not going to have a choice. I uh, I think you're probably right about that. And again, we're in a hypothesis territory now. I think there's three questions that really need to get good answers before this. The jury is going to be reasonably settled on this. I think first of all is we need more facts on the coronavirus. Right now, early information is so light. People really don't understand. They don't understand the true mortality rate because they don't have enough of a sample set to understand how many people are sick but not showing any symptoms. How many people are sick but don't get medical care? What we saw in Hubei province was, frankly, the medical systems were so overwhelmed that we don't know if we have a good set of information to work with. That's the first question that has to be answered. Second question is, what's the vaccine time frame right now? Uh, we know that the CDC is already doing some early work on uh, – I think there was an Oxford company that delivered an initial uh, vaccine to them. So we know that that's already in progress. If the vaccine's nine months out rather than 18 months out, that's a big factor that's really going to shift the marketplace. And uh, I think the third factor that really has to be answered here is how seasonal is the coronavirus? Because we know the flu virus, the standard strains of the flu virus are very seasonal. That's why we don't get the flu, generally speaking, in May, June, July, and August. That's why I get my flu shot in October. There we go. Exactly. So uh, if we see that same uh, vulnerability in the coronavirus, just some seasonality, and, and these cases really start ticking down, over the next 90 days, that's, I think, really going to help the marketplace. I do think we're going to see some more short-term disruption. I personally think we're going to see further pullbacks in the stock market over the next two weeks because you and I both know, in, in all likelihood, U.S. cases of coronavirus are going to get really serious over the next couple of weeks. We have right now in Washington probably the largest breakout um, you know, there's a long incubation period. So we're going to see things get worse before they get better in terms of the U.S. see some real, uh, some real cases blossom. Uh, but in all likelihood, the stock market's going to react to that and, and probably will start to see some more balancing. Yeah. And if I think I, if, if I think, and I don't even want to begin to try to start to understand the media, but if I'm a, if I'm a betting man, right, the media has a ton of runway right now, and it would almost be impossible to not hear, right, max coronavirus news over the next two, three, four weeks, right? And perception's reality. So, yeah. so we, I mean, I, I almost think it's a, it's a foregone conclusion whether, you know, whether, whether what's going on out in the Western, you know, in, in in uh, Eastern Hemisphere, yeah, yeah, in the Eastern Hemisphere, um, is to the magnitude we think it's going to be or not. I think that the, yeah, I, I don't. It, I think it, I just got that wrong. I think hemisphere okay. is north south, but you know what I mean. Yeah, we know what we're talking <laughs> about. But but the real yeah the real problem is is that is that it's not a problem. But the media's got enough runway right now where where the next three four weeks is is almost a certainty. And this is let's call a, a, a spade a spade. And the sad truth is this is a rating bonanza for cable news. And like it or not, they're going to give this max coverage. And I think max coverage does tend to fuel more of that fear side of public and investor sentiment. And that correlates to what the stock market does and to some some degree correlates to what the real estate market does. So we got to get through the other side of this this blitz of, of kind of coverage that this is going to get. And I think once we get to that other side with more facts, with more of the questions that you and I just described getting answered, we're going to know at that point – 90 days from now, what the real impact looks like or, or more of what it looks like. Absolutely. But it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how, in particular, funds, you know, large funds that have raised a lot of money over the last, you know, call it 12 months, you know, react to all of this over the next, call it 60 days. Because they're going to be in an environment where they they may feel like they can lock in interest rates that they've never seen before. I think that'll be a real conundrum for some of these investment committees. Well, they'll, yeah. well, they'll be sitting there not knowing the exact risk of what coronavirus is, but knowing that they can put debt in place at 3.5% versus 4.25% a year ago versus cap rates that are the same. I mean, that that's difficult to resist. But also you and I know that institutions 
don't want to be the people who make the mistakes and like make the obvious mistake. I think right. people are still nervous about the Great Recession and, and making mistakes going into that. No one wants to be the last person in to an asset class. Absolutely. So. And I think that everybody, right, especially when you're sitting, I mean, to get really granular, when you're sitting on that response back from an asset that you're trying to buy and all of a sudden – Financing gets just a, even just a little bit cheaper, right? And you know that at least, you know, under all normal circumstances, you need to get this money out and you need to place it, right? What What's an institution to do? Yeah. Conundrum. Well, with that, we'll leave it there. This is a topic that I know we'll be coming back to throughout our other podcasts. Really excited. Our next podcast is going to be broadcast live from Los Angeles. We're going to be out in L.A. later this week, uh, and we're going to be doing a Prop 13 breakdown about real estate and what uh, Prop 13 could mean for for occupancy costs. I'm going to be in flip-flops, shorts, maybe a tank top. I haven't decided yet. Definitely, uh, you're, you're definitely going peak Los Angeles out there. I like definitely, that. definitely sunglasses. Not even, not even a question. And I will be eating more poke bowls than I can. I thought handle. you were going to say an acai bowl, but oh, hey, I do maybe like, both. Maybe I both. do like the acai bowls in the morning before the morning hike. I do. <laughs> I do. I'm looking forward to it. Well, we thank everyone for joining. Uh, looking forward to having you for our next episode of Net Takeaways with Feller and Harf. And we're wishing you each a lovely day. Take care. Take care.